0: Welcome to the Created to Flourish podcast, where we'll explore the believer's call to respond to great global need. In each episode, we'll be reading a chapter from a book called Created to Flourish, co-authored by Peter Greer and Phil Smith, and we'll examine how employment-based solutions empower families to use their God-given abilities to serve their communities. I'm your host, Hannah Ruth, Hope International's Regional Representative in Minnesota. In this episode, we'll talk about choosing effective organizations to support. If you're just joining the podcast, we'd recommend going back and starting from episode one and listening to the episodes in order. Let's dive in.
1: Chapter 14, Rolling Up Our Sleeves, written by Phil Smith. How many times did you think about poverty last week? The prophet Amos had harsh words for Israel, calling them cows of Bashan, Amos 4.1, for neglecting those in poverty. Amos outlines God's distaste for the way they oppress the poor and crush the needy and warns, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. Amos 5.11 Forgetting people in poverty is unthinkable to God. Yet for us, forgetting is all too easy. We do not see the men in poverty in Zambia when we leave our suburban homes and drive to work. We do not see the children in poverty in Cambodia during our lunch breaks. We might see the women in poverty in Peru only on television, but it's easy to change the channel. This is why we need reminders. This is why the pages of our Bibles, from Genesis to the prophets of the Israelites, and from Jesus to Paul, consistently command us to remember the poor. Turning a blind eye is sinful, but it is quick and painless, particularly since we live in a culture Or we're bombarded by countless advertisements every day showing us what we don't have. They shout the lie that we'd be more popular, sexy, and satisfied if only we had a better outfit, cell phone, flat screen TV, or car. What we really need are constant reminders of what we do have and how we can act to impact those who have far less. Maybe then we will roll up our sleeves and actually do something about it. On your knees, please. How often do we say, I'll pray for you, and how often do we really pray? In scripture, prayer is often like a wrestling match. As pastor and author Rick Warren writes, people may refuse our love or reject our message, but they are defenseless against our prayers. The Bible tells us to pray for opportunities to witness, for courage to speak up for those who will believe for the rapid spread of the message and for more workers. You should also pray for missionaries and everyone else involved in the global harvest. Paul told his prayer partners, you are also joining to help us when you pray for us. 2 Corinthians 1.11 Prayer focuses us on what is important. Praying for those in poverty can open our eyes to their reality and connect our hearts with theirs. In an amazing way, prayer has the potential to change us even as we are praying for others. James writes, The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, James 5.16. Our prayers are heard by a loving God who loves to respond. Consider joining the prayer update list of missions-minded microenterprise development organizations and remembering staff, employees, and clients in regular prayer. Less is more. Tony Campolo is considered by some to be a modern-day William Wilberforce with regard to social justice issues. is a living reminder not to forget those on the margins unconventional in his approach campolo is focused on pricking the evangelical conscience in order to prompt action in everybody wants to change the world campolo and gordon ashleman describe one movement designed to help us remember people in poverty one simple idea for combating compassion fatigue is to try to live once a month on less than two dollars a day like 949 million people do every day. Commit to doing this for a year with a group of friends who also want to go on the same spiritual journey of keeping families in poverty alive in their hearts. After the year is up, evaluate how the discipline has shaped your lifestyle and commitments regarding the needs of others. Living on less than $2 will be a challenge because you will have to deprive your body for 24 hours. You will have to fast for the day, or eat a can of soup that you purchase for less than $2. Your beverage will consist of glasses of water from the faucet, and you won't be able to drive far because you'd use up $2 of fuel in a short distance. Christmas may be the best time of the year to engage children in remembering the example and life of Jesus, instead of celebrating consumerism gone crazy. Followers of Jesus could use this time of year to focus on the joys that come from giving to others, restoring a degree of sanity to the holiday Jen Nepper of Pennsylvania celebrates Christmas with her nieces and nephews by pulling together a portion of their allowances that they have saved throughout the year and looking through the materials of Heifer International, World Vision and Samaritan's Purse to pick out gifts to give to others around the world In 2008 Jen brought this idea to a wider group of people through the Gifts that Give Hope Fair in Lancaster, Pennsylvania In 2008 Jen brought this idea to a wider group of people through the Gifts That Give Hope Fair in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Like other alternative gift fairs, it offers people giving opportunities with service-focused organizations. Instead of shopping mania on Black Friday, shoppers can purchase gift cards supporting local and international charities. All of these types of efforts are attempting to combat the perception of many Americans who honestly think we have barely enough to survive in modest comfort. Volunteering Another way to remember people in developing countries is through volunteering. Peer Servants is an organization connecting volunteers directly to microfinance institutions around the world. By breaking individuals into teams that maximize the skills and abilities of each member, they have proven meaningful engagement is possible, even from a distance. Take the example of Ron Oloferns who serves as Relationship Manager with Peer Servants Partner in the Philippines, the Center for Community Transformation. Originally from the Philippines himself, Ron shares, as a volunteer with Peer Servants, I found a meaningful opportunity to use my God-given gifts and abilities while providing a positive impact in the lives of the materially poor, especially in my home country. Since the start of my volunteering work with Peer Servants, I have felt that my heart towards helping the material poor has grown. Peer Servants is a leader in connecting volunteers to ministry opportunities, but many other organizations provide opportunities as well, and several do so through relationships with the halftime movement. Bob Buford's book, Halftime, inspired thousands of individuals in the second half of their lives to seek service opportunities. Many of these individuals have business skills critical to building employment-based solutions to poverty. Since microenterprise development is essentially banking for individuals in poverty, it is a natural place for bankers in the business community to devote their skills to a very different group of shareholders. The same skills that led to success in the first half of life can be applied in amazing ways in the second half. David Foster is one such individual. A certified public accountant, David spent 24 years working for such organizations as Ernst & Young and CNIT Bank, Where he created the internal controls department and served as vice president and director of operations analysis and internal controls since officially retiring in 2014 david has traveled with hope international to malawi and rwanda where he volunteers his extensive experience to help with operational and financial audits given my prior experience in banking auditing and volunteering david shares It seemed like a perfect fit for me to volunteer my services to an organization such as Hope. Like most volunteer activities, I receive much more from the experience than I could have ever imagined. Learn together. Your small group or church can easily learn more about a biblical understanding of poverty, its causes, and its remedies. Some of what you and your fellow Christ followers find may spur you into action. Here are a few helpful resources. Hope Lives is a curriculum written by Compassion International staff member Amber Van Vanschubfeld. This five-week study also has a children's version so you can study issues of global poverty with your whole family. In partnership with Willowdale Chapel, Hope International produced Perspectives on Global Poverty, an eight-week Bible study that examines God's heart for families in poverty and challenges believers to take concrete action in response. Perspectives.hopeinternational.org See it to believe it. Sometimes you need to see something to understand it. Greg Thompson, an entrepreneur from Massachusetts, described the impact of seeing microfinance firsthand. I had heard about microfinance, but was blown away when I actually saw it. It was like watching fireworks on television versus actually being underneath the explosions. Like watching a movie about a roller coaster versus being in the front seat of one. It's just so much more incredible in person. These experiences can prompt individuals to take significant action. Justin Bredeman was an executive with Annie Ann's Pretzel Franchising Company prior to traveling to the Dominican Republic to learn about microenterprise development, along with me and several others. He explained, Meeting individuals who are working themselves out of poverty, hearing their stories firsthand, visiting their homes, and meeting their children had a much bigger impact on me than I ever imagined. There is a way of helping people help themselves, and I wanted to be a part of it. But what should you do when you return from a short-term mission trip? Is it enough to return from a trip and feel more thankful for all that you have? That's a start, but if that is the only fruit after a direct encounter with poverty, something is missing. Seeing such needs with our own eyes creates a responsibility to actually do something. Unfortunately, the statistics are not encouraging about the way short-term trips move people to action. Kurt Verbeek, director of Calvin College's Honduras program, has dedicated a significant part of his research to the effectiveness of short-term missions. In an interview, Christianity Today magazine reported on his findings. While 52% of respondents claim to have increased their giving to the sending organization after the trip, according to the organization's records, 70% of the participants in the short-term mission trips to Honduras didn't send in a single direct donation in the three years after the trip, and few lasting friendships were built. While 92% of the North Americans said they had meaningful contact with Hondurans for at least part of every day of their trip, less than a quarter stayed in touch with their Honduran friends after they returned home. Although the results found by Verbeek may not reflect the impact of every short-term mission trip, There is no doubt that short-term missions have exploded in popularity. There ought to be a way to discover which people were truly impacted by their experience and engage them quickly after the trip. We are missing a big opportunity if the church does not find better ways to translate these positive experiences into long-term action. Giving with excellence The primary way most of us engage those in developing countries is through giving. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul told the church members of Corinth that they already excelled in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, 2 Corinthians 8.7. Then he went on to exhort them to see that you also excel in this grace of giving. How can we 21st century Christians excel at the grace of giving? Don Milliken is the CFO of a successful company, a former partner of a big four accounting form, and a longtime church leader. He asks some clarifying questions about excellent giving. Does it mean to give effectively? If so, how do we define effectiveness and gather the data to measure it? Does it mean to give according to what we feel are the leadings of the Holy Spirit? If so, how do we quantify those leadings and implement them in our lives? How do we even understand how we fit in the process of giving? Milliken points to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 and 7 as an important passage showing that God is responsible for the results of our giving, not us. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. From our earthly point of view, we cannot see how effective some programs have been, are, or may be in the future. Milliken asks, what if you only impact one person for Christ, and that person turns out to be the next Billy Graham? He also says that we are to be good stewards of the resources entrusted to us, and in that capacity, we have to make the best giving decisions we can, given the information we have. Being an excellent giver often means living at the intersection of faith and action. Our giving resources consist of time, talent, and treasure. If we think about it this way, we realize that our time and talent are mostly constrained by our physical location. For that reason, our time and talent are often best allocated to our local communities. Our treasure is our stored labor. We can easily ship our stored labor anywhere in the world at any time. So if efficiency is the point, our treasure is often the resource best used in developing countries. Our treasure doesn't consist only of the money in our bank accounts. We have many unexpected sources of treasure available if we just look around for them. The high school leadership group at First United Methodist Church in Birmingham, Michigan, met one afternoon in 2005. They decided to implement a new project to reach their own community about the problem of HIV and AIDS in Africa. Their plan was to collect 23 million pennies representing the 23 million people infected with HIV and AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa. And they did. These funds were used to sponsor several African health and educational organizations. After a lot of scripture study, Milliken and I have come to understand that the Bible seems to address three categories of giving. As we allocate resources between and within these three categories, we must rely on prayer the wise counsel of church leaders and other Christians, and the Holy Spirit's still, small voice. Church. We're called to support our local churches financially. We entrust these funds to the congregation's leaders who have been chosen by God. As members of the community, we are called to rely on the group's leadership and support its prayerful actions. This type of giving makes up the majority of giving for many U.S. Christians, and it also made up the majority of giving for Jews and Christians in the early days of the church. Leadership, not the givers, is primarily responsible for how effectively these gifts are spent. Compassion. We are called to give compassionately to meet the immediate needs of people in our lives, especially our families and other Christians. Although Christ calls us to give generously and even sacrificially, we must be careful not to create dependency. In this type of giving, we are to rely on the Holy Spirit to help us discern how we respond. Our end goal is to see that needs are met and that God receives the glory. Calling We are individually called to spread the kingdom by helping people, both physically and spiritually, those of us who are rich, and that's all of us, have the ability to make a significant and lasting impact in developing countries. But how specifically should we allocate our resources to make a difference for Jesus Christ? How do we put biblical principles and commandments into action? The way we allocate our resources is where we roll up our sleeves and put our money where our mouths are. I'd like to offer some ideas based on my own giving and the experiences of people and churches i worked with over the years. The most common tendency of givers and missions committees is to give money away this year very much like it was given the previous year. Sometimes this happens after intensive analysis, but more often it happens for a variety of other reasons such as habit, the desire not to hurt somebody's feelings, or responding to pleas from friends. Our actions could be entirely different if we chose to follow clear guidelines. For instance, in the past I have chosen to allocate money based on the effectiveness of individual projects, but now I try to allocate based on a project's ability to help people both spiritually and physically on a long-term basis. Because I have changed my guidelines, the results of how I give have changed dramatically. As an example, consider an evangelist who might propose going to India and presenting the gospel to 10,000 people over two weeks at a cost of $20,000. He believes he will be able to preach to that number of people, but has not coordinated the effort with local Christians for follow-up relationship building. In the past, I would have found this to be a good project because sharing the gospel at $2 per person seems very efficient. Today, I would not support the project because by definition, it would not meet people's physical and spiritual needs over the long term. Let me point out that every giver will spend his or her giving budget using some method and some set of assumptions. The fact that the money gets spent shows that value judgments and allocation techniques have been made and used, whether explicitly or implicitly. Since every giving expenditure is evaluated in some way, doesn't it make sense to evaluate our choices thoughtfully and intentionally? Some people believe their allocations and judgments are made solely through the leading of the Holy Spirit, but taking the time to pray and think through our giving decisions is simply a way of fulfilling the steward responsibility God has given us. Here's some good news that we hope this book has made clear. Microenterprise development and other employment-based poverty alleviation solutions are helping those living in poverty. Giving to these types of projects and to the right organizations is a highly effective way to improve the physical and spiritual condition of people in poverty around the world. We don't need to be afraid of giving. Rather, as we see brave Christ followers doing holistic work in every country around the world, our only fear may be that we are not yet giving enough. Choosing Organizations I believe givers should ask themselves two basic questions when they start assessing whether to support an organization. First, are my goals and the goals of the organization in harmony? Second, does the organization actually try to achieve its stated goals in a way that makes sense to me? The first question became apparent to me after giving a speech about microfinance. When it was over, a woman chided me, saying, All you care about is poor people. I care most about eliminating abuse to pets. Obviously, she and I should support different organizations. The second question became important to me after I started asking people why the organizations they worked with or supported, some of which were churches, should be considered Christian. Here are the types of answers I typically received. Because we feed those in poverty, and Jesus said we should do that. Because we provide fresh water for people, which makes their lives better. Because some of our field personnel share the gospel when they think the time is right because the founders of our organization were Baptists, and because some of our board members go to church regularly. These types of answers remind me of one of the first stories Peter ever shared with me. As part of a training on microenterprise development sponsored by the United States Agency for International Development in Uganda in 1999, Peter had an opportunity to visit a leading MFI. The MFI was well known as a Christian nonprofit organization and was funded in large part by believers in the U.S. Peter found that it used the same methodology and the same loan products as a secular MFI working in the area. The more he compared the two organizations, the more he struggled to find any meaningful difference in their services or relationships with borrowers. Neither one demonstrated biblical discipleship or extraordinary care for employees or clients' physical, emotional, or spiritual needs. What difference did it make that they were called a Christian organization? Was it anything more than a fundraising tool targeting unsuspecting Christian supporters? Unfortunately, there are many so-called faith-based organizations that would be equally hard-pressed to differentiate themselves from secular programs. Brian Fickert, founder and president of the chalmers center once told me christian development work must include a clear presentation of the gospel failure to do so denies individuals access to the only real solution to the fundamental causes of poverty it might sound like an obvious starting point but unless an organization takes significant care to create a corporate culture that emphasizes effective witness for christ they will not share the gospel consistently granted Individuals in any organization have an opportunity to act as witnesses for Jesus. However, sharing the gospel consistently and at larger scale can only happen when the organization's management makes it a priority. All of the above is not meant to criticize secular organizations. In fact, as I discussed below, I think it is a wonderful idea to access these organizations for their services or expertise and even to partner with them in the right circumstances. However, since we all have limited resources, we givers should be careful to use our resources to support organizations that consistently act in accordance with our own calling and purpose. There are other organizational characteristics to consider as we decide where to direct our time, energy, and money. Local Church Sammy Ma, former president of World Relief, regularly talks about the importance of focusing on the Big K, the Kingdom of God. Organizations often spend too much time building their own little kingdoms and missing the bigger picture. We could accomplish so much more if no one cared who gets the credit. Within this partnership, the indigenous local church must be central. In a small group setting in conjunction with the Peace Plan launch, Rick Warren spoke about the NGOization of ministry that has replaced the role of the local church. He is largely right the local church has not been intimately involved in many Christian development projects around the world, much to the detriment of the local church and to the detriment of the projects. Working with the local church is not easy, yet this church is and always will be Christ's body on earth, to whom he entrusts the task of feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. No organization is better placed for providing and administering social services than the local church. As we've discussed, The local church has the mandate, the credibility, and the connections that yield the most efficient results. By working with a local church, outsiders can take advantage of local resources without appearing to be the solution to every problem. This allows solutions to be locally owned and empowers local churches. The result is longer-term growth and stability. Helping a local church provide social services also helps it gain the opportunity to share the gospel with people who might not otherwise hear the good news. This allows a local church to develop an integrated ministry of meeting people's financial and spiritual needs. A common hindrance to working with a local church is a lack of reliable local leadership. Sometimes the solution, rather than turning away, is to raise up and train local leaders. This training might involve discipleship, theological education, lifestyle modeling, and meeting whatever other specific needs exist. Unfortunately, this takes years of effort, so other projects may need to be delayed until this can be accomplished. If a project needs to bypass local Christian leaders, it is a danger sign. When Western organizations find themselves in combat with local leaders, it may be a sign that the Western organization is on shaky ground since local people often understand the situation best. On the other hand, it may also be a sign that local leadership is only protecting its turf and needs to be worked with carefully. Works well with others. All programs and churches have limited resources. Whenever it doesn't compromise the mission of the program or church, we should consider leveraging the assets of other organizations. In a small village in the Dominican Republic, I walked by a nicer-than-normal home with a smiling young woman standing in the doorway. An hour later, I walked by again, and she was still standing there and smiling. When I asked my host about her situation, I was told the aid organization that employed this young health worker had mostly solved the particular health care situation in that area. They kept her employed even though she had little work to do. As a result, she now spent most of her day standing in the doorway even though neighboring communities desperately needed her expertise. What was needed was a partnership between this local aid organization and neighboring ones in order to best provide for the needs of the greatest number of people. In the Dominican Republic... Esperanza International was astute enough to observe that many charities and governmental agencies provide numerous services throughout the island, many of which go unused because few people outside of the local community know about them. Esperanza staff now shares with clients any information regarding services that would be beneficial to them. At virtually no cost to Esperanza, its clients are learning about a plethora of additional services. Partnering with secular agencies is an important issue. As long as the Christian organization is transparent about its core goals and beliefs, there are many bridge-building opportunities. As more and more Christian organizations gain reputations for operational excellence, an increasing number of development professionals will seek them out for collaboration. Measure results. Management guru Peter Drucker said, You get what you measure. If an organization's goal is to see lasting spiritual fruit, then it is important to find indicators that help steer toward more effective programming. Measuring spiritual indicators needs to be done carefully and comprehensively, just as you measure financial indicators. It is frustrating that many nonprofit organizations aren't interested in knowing their effectiveness, either financially or spiritually. The ones who do publish numbers often measure things that are not terribly important. If you choose to support an organization, make sure you understand what kind of results you can expect to see reported and how those results are measured. The primary reason to calculate cost efficiency is to wisely steward the resources God provides to accomplish his will as best as we understand it. Without establishing standards and measuring results, there is no standard by which to allocate resources to various programs. This is especially important for churches, since the programs they become involved with require long-term commitments. Without proper communication about expectations, it is likely that problems will result. However, determining and monitoring the correct measures is often exceptionally difficult, especially when it comes to spiritual impact. When considering financial results, there are many organizations that attempt to measure and compare the effectiveness of various charities and nonprofit organizations. For the microfinance industry, Market is one of the best. It's a web-based information platform linking MFIs worldwide with investors and donors in order to promote greater investment and information flow. With a platform for fair and standardized reporting, organizations and individuals around the world have a convenient way to share information With donors and like minded organizations. In turn, investors and donors can more easily compare MFIs to decide where money will best be used to serve families in poverty. Mixed Market provides data on over 2,000 MFIs, as well as networks, funders, and service providers. The Key Role of Donors History reminds us that the church's involvement in missions and acts of compassion swings like a pendulum. When acts of compassion replace the presentation of the gospel story, the next tendency is to swing to the other extreme and ignore the scriptural commands to serve and love through deeds. The greatest threat to the church's full embrace of this new entrepreneurial approach to integrated word and deed missions is the temptation to slowly compromise the incorporation of the gospel message. Donors have a key role in protecting this aspect of an organization's mission And preventing this drift from occurring.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Created to Flourish podcast. This podcast is a production of Hope International, a global nonprofit that responds to the call to serve those living in poverty by providing discipleship, biblically based training, a safe place to save, and small business loans. If you're interested in learning more about Hope International, we invite you to check out Hope's website www.hopeinternational.org slash flourish